it felt like we were alone. You can feel sometimes that you're lost in your grief and alone. It can feel very lonely. People just don't get it. They don't understand, which then perpetuates the feeling of aloneness. That sense of isolation and being abandoned by everyone. It became really lonely. It is lonely. I feel alone. I had to break free from this isolation. I talk to thousands and thousands of caregivers, and all of them tell me they feel so alone. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. And today we're talking about loneliness and caregiving. Have you ever had that experience of being surrounded by people, whether in an intimate setting like a group of friends or just a public place, like being surrounded by people, but feeling completely overwhelmingly alone? Well, let me tell you about a moment when I had this experience. This happened in 2020 when, of course, all of us were more isolated than ever, and it made the loneliness of caregiving even more intense. It was the final week of my late husband's life and I knew it, but no one else did yet, except for our hospice doctor and nurse. I needed to tell my children. I was getting ready to do that. It was an impossible task. Christopher needed comfort and reassurance. He knew what was happening, but the caregiving had switched. We had been partners in everything, including his care, but now he couldn't comfort me in this time. Of course he couldn't, of course but it felt so lonely. During this week, one of my younger kids could sense something and was having a really, really hard time and needed me and my full attention. All he knew how to ask for was a solo trip to the grocery store with me. It was a treat because we were cooped up inside because of the pandemic. We wore our masks in our local grocery store and I had this out of body moment like, I can't believe I'm buying my darling baby a candy bar and a soda while his father is dying. This is happening, and I'm not ready, but it's happening. He knows, but I have to say the words, and I have to get him ready, and we're buying candy. This is so stupid. What is this? The loneliness was building. I was used to talking through all of this with Christopher, and I couldn't. It wasn't fair. And I was struck with the thought, oh, this is how it's going to be from now on, doing everything without my person, alone. It was the most isolating, painful realization. And I was standing in the produce section, having my moment. When life changes in extreme ways, like it does for caregivers, you start to feel different. You don't expect your other people to relate to what you're going through because they're on the other side of the curtain and they can't see or fully understand what's happening, even if you talk about it. And you don't know what's going on yourself. I didn't. Caregiving is hard to see objectively when you're at the start or in the middle of it. But one thing most caregivers agree on, no matter what phase of caregiving they're in, is that caregiving is lonely. And we're diving into that in this episode, why it happens and how to survive. I've got one of the top experts in the world on loneliness here with us today, Dr. Julianne Holt Lundstad, as well as Dr. Suzanne Daggs white a licensed counselor, author, and professor who specializes in helping people navigate transitions. 
And I also have my dear friend, Emily Campbell. And I want to start with her because she taught me a lot about the realities of caregiving when I was in the middle of my own intense time. I'll let her tell you a little bit about her caregiving situation. So my son, Connor, he is 16 now, and he was born having seizures. He has what they call catastrophic epilepsy, or they call it refractory epilepsy, intractable epilepsy, idiopathic epilepsy, all these gross names. So he's had seizures his whole life, many different kinds. He also has autism. He has ADHD, severe, and OCD, probably some other existing diagnoses that we haven't even gotten to because he's still technically a child and he's nonverbal. But so he's 16 now. He's diapered. Um, seizures every day, although we do have amazing seizure control right now, even with really good seizure control, he still has seizures every day. Uh, he's very, very um, easily agitated. He gets super aggressive now that he's in the throes of puberty. Um, we've had some major issues with uh, destruction and aggression, especially towards his baby brother and towards me. And then his cognition has never developed beyond about 18 months. So we have this giant baby that we take care of. And luckily, he's gorgeous. I mean, he is a looker. And if he could sit still, we would make him model. But he does not like to sit still for anything, not even to eat. So it's rough. But um, he's so beautiful. We love him. The most beautiful boy <laughs> ever that we love. And um, it's been tricky. It's been hard. It's been all the things. And it, you don't really have an end date. Right. So you've gone it alone. You've been out really open about the realities of caregiving. Yes. And you and I have bonded over the people that we've caregived for or continue to caregive with because there's so much love there, right? Mm. And so we have a lot of inside jokes about <laughs> caregiving. And when I started being a caregiver, nothing I said shocked you, oh, which was no. so refreshing and also like oddly comforting. <laughs> <laughs> so that is Emily Campbell. She's wonderful. And as you're about to hear, she was an enormous support to me in my own caregiving journey. And in a conversation about loneliness and caregiving, I had to bring her in to explain a little bit more about an inside joke that's been going on now for years. So you and I talk a lot about normies and how they don't get it. Right. Or we'll say normals, they don't understand. Right. They're like muggles, normies, normals. So <laughs> explain for those who don't know that they're a normie. Um, it, they're the it people that have a way more normal life than we do. Like you and I were in the same boat. Like, you know, even though your caregiving has slightly ended, even though you're still, you know, kids at home and all the things, but... Um, we had an overlap, like a period of time where we were kind of doing the same things with the personal care, the therapies, the medical directing, you know, all those things where we were kind of doing the exact same thing for you, for your husband and me, for my teenage boy. Um, but the normies, they don't get all the things that come with that. It's not just the physical act of caregiving. It's so beyond that. There's so many things that a normie would never think was hard for someone like you or me. Like, 
uh, you know, all my neighbors and all the, you know, a lot of people in my life are normies. They get up on Saturday morning and they get to take their kids to soccer game or whatever activities they have and spend Saturday with their kids. And sometimes those are relaxing days. Sometimes they're super busy. For us, like Saturday was the worst day of the week because Connor didn't have any therapies, no school, no in-home care. And so we were, you know, kind of just stuck that day, keeping him entertained, keeping his sensory needs met, keeping him from destroying things and people. And a normie would not get that. They they would get like, yeah, it's really hard that you have a nonverbal child in diapers that has a million seizures a day, but they don't think beyond those physical acts of the caregiving. They don't think that like, oh, I've never had a normal Saturday morning with my kids. My seven-year-old had never laid in my bed and fallen asleep in in seven years of his life because that's where Connor is and you can't be in there when he's trying to go to sleep. So the normies don't get things like that, right? Even when I will sometimes ask you, like, how was your day? And you'll be like, it's fine. I mean, Connor had a grand mal seizure cluster and also broke four picture frames <laughs> and cracked the window. See, I'm just laughing about it because... And, 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 and you'll be like, and I think most people would be like, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. Like th- that is one, you know, rapid succession. That's a normie really reaction. But, but I'd be like, oh, okay. So like yeah. kind of a just regular normal, day. Just normal. Day. Yeah. Exactly. Like no cause for alarm. No. Which... It, it does say something about normalizing. Yeah. But, <laughs> like for, but a, a normie would in, be alarmed. Intense. Yeah, and yeah. think, oh my gosh, that's such a horrible day. And I'm like, but actually, I can really it's very believe normal. you when you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, so I'm okay. I'm just like cleaning yeah. stuff up. And Or I had to meet Connor at the ER from school because he had a seizure and he had to get seizures or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very normal day. It's funny when we talk about it. It is. Suddenly it doesn't what did seem you send really me? funny. <laughs> you sent me a meme the other day. It was like, the more you have to deal with or talk about grief and death, the funnier you are. Yeah. That's why I we're funny. That's true. That's why we laugh all the time. <laughs> if you don't laugh, Mm-mm. you'll cry I don't more. Want, I don't want to cry more. I cry enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are those moments. And yes. I think sometimes that deepness, um, the sadness of, you know, how much you love the person that you're caregiving for and you know that every day just makes you tired yeah. and um, sad for them. Yeah. That's something that creates for me a lot of loneliness. For sure. That's another part like a, like a normie doesn't understand how isolating it is to be a full-time caregiver. What Emily just said, that people don't understand how isolating it really is to be a caregiver. This is something I've heard so many people say. You heard some of them at the beginning of this episode, and I want to break down this isolation. Let me introduce you to Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad. I'm Julianne Holt-Lundstad, and I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience, but my work really focuses on quite broadly, the protective effects of being socially connected, but also the risks associated when we lack connection, whether that be through isolation, loneliness, or poor quality of relationships, and and how that can put us at risk for um, a variety of outcomes. You might have noticed that Julianne mentioned isolation and loneliness as two different things. That stuck out to me because I kind of use those words interchangeably. But when I asked her about it, I learned that science has a unique definition for each one. And the distinction matters to understanding what caregivers go through. 
There is a difference, yeah. So isolation is thought to be more objective. It's either objectively being alone or having few relationships or infrequent social contact with others. Whereas loneliness is more of that subjective feeling alone. It's typically a distressing feeling and it is often described as being based on the discrepancy between your desired level of connection and your actual level of connection. I just have to pause here because I think this definition is so cool. Loneliness is distress from the gap between how much connection you need and how much you're actually getting. And so Isolation and loneliness can often co-occur because objectively being alone can increase your likelihood of feeling alone, but they don't necessarily. So people can be objectively alone and not feel lonely. They might actually prefer being alone or experience some solitude. And on the other hand, you could be surrounded by other people and still feel profoundly lonely. This makes so much sense to me. I think we got into it a little bit during our self-care series, but one of my children has entertained the lifelong dream of living out in the woods in a cabin, interacting with no one for a long period of time so they can just read his books. This is his idea of paradise. As an extrovert, I have to use my imagination to understand that because it's definitely not my idea of paradise. But between that and some of my dear, dear introverted friends, I have plenty of examples of people in my life for whom isolation doesn't lead to loneliness. And I think all parents know that point you can get to with your kids where alone time is welcome, even if it's just escaping to the bathroom for two minutes while kids are breathing your name underneath the door and reaching under with their tiny fingers. Not all isolation leads to loneliness. It's interesting to me that these things aren't one-to-one because as Dr. Holt Lundstedt mentioned, you can have the opposite experience too. And this is something caregivers know. You can be surrounded by people, not isolated at all, and still feel profoundly lonely. If we go back to the grocery store in 2020 for a moment, there's a little more to that story. When we left off, I was having a waking nightmare in the produce section, feeling that intense, suffocating loneliness. At that moment, someone I knew, a friend, walked by with a hurried but sincere, hi, how are you guys? And I couldn't say much. I don't remember what I said, but I was trying to tell her with my eyes that things are bad, but I can't say anything because my son is here and also help me, I don't know how. I'm sure I looked insane, but she got the message and dropped off a kind note later that said something like, I don't know what's going on, but I am so sorry and I'm here to talk if you need to. That meant so much to me, but I also didn't have the time or energy or focus to call her and talk and pour out my heart because I was in the thick of it. As I've thought about this situation since, I've thought, well, what should I have done? What would have been a better way to handle that moment? I still don't know, but I have been able to identify something since that wasn't even in a corner of my mind back then. And that's how guilt played into all of this. When my role as a caregiver was at its most intense, and then again in the aftermath of my husband's death, it surprised me to realize that I could have these really close, generous, honest, connected, amazing friends who had been with me through the hardest, the ugliest stuff, and I could still feel alone. I felt guilty about that because I thought I was expecting too much. 
You know, it's one thing to not feel connected in social situations like being seen as the scarlet W for widow. But when you're talking real talk with your friends and you realize that they desperately don't know what to say because neither of you knows what to do and they can go home and live their lives. But this situation, well, it is your life. It feels very lonely. So many people had and continue to help my family out. And it seems ungrateful to complain how hard it is when they're right there. During this time, I felt a lot of pressure to emphasize the silver linings, not further worry my friends and family and protect Chris's privacy. Even my close friends who were there and tried to understand by relating couldn't. And that was really hard for all of us. In hindsight, I can see that some part of me had an expectation that if the isolation went away, the loneliness would go away too. So if I reached out to people, I wouldn't feel lonely. If my friends showed up for me, I wouldn't feel lonely. If I miraculously ran into someone who loves me at the grocery store, who I could have a whole conversation with just with our eyes, I wouldn't feel lonely. Well, that's how I was expecting the math to work. And then when it didn't, when I still felt lonely... After my and everyone's best efforts, I felt guilty, that I was ungrateful, that I was the reason this gap was still there. The problem with my math was thinking that isolation caused loneliness, and if you fix one, you solve the other. Thanks to Dr. Holt Lundstad, we know that's not true. Julianne's going to share a little more about the real root causes of loneliness, especially for caregivers. As you know personally, caregiving is a labor of love. And so whether it is caring for a child or a spouse or other loved one who has a disability or chronic illness or maybe even an aging parent, it it truly is a labor of love. And so while you're with this person that you love and care about so much, that oftentimes their needs often are put above your own needs. And that this can be from not taking the time to, you know, take care of your own self, whether that's eating, sleeping, exercise, but also your social needs. And that sometimes I think may be less obvious because you're actually with someone. Julianne is pointing out here that caregivers are more likely to have unmet needs in a lot of categories, physical, mental, emotional. It's just harder to take care of yourself when you're taking care of a loved one as well. We're going to get into that a little later in this series when we talk about burnout. In the meantime, it can be difficult to even recognize those needs, especially our social needs, which means they can fly under the radar without being addressed. Dr. Holt Lundstad gave one reason why, because caregivers are rarely physically alone. That makes it less obvious when loneliness creeps in because it feels counterintuitive. We're about to hear another reason why these root cause unmet needs can be so hard to identify in ourselves. Let me introduce you to Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, a counselor who has supported a lot of caregivers and an expert on life transitions. Hi there. Yeah, I'm Suzanne Deggs-White. I'm chair of the Department of Counseling and Higher Education at Northern Illinois University, and I'm also a licensed counselor. I've been counseling folks for over 20 years, and a big part of my population has been working with women in midlife and beyond, and usually it's that generation that is the ones that get tasked with caring for older adult relatives, caring for their partners, and so I kind of understand the ways in which those women have needs, and men too 
too, who are caregivers. That happens more than we might realize. How they have needs that aren't being met because their hesitancy to voice their needs because they see themselves as the needed. Right off the bat, Suzanne confirmed that caregivers are more likely to live with unmet needs and that they're less likely to be fully aware of those needs. It's a blind spot that just happens when you see yourself as the needed. But as she's about to explain, there's more to it. Well, a lot of that is the emotional need for connection and connectivity with others. When we're caregiving, our sole focus is on the person who needs us, and oftentimes that person is unable to be in a relationship in the way that they were in a relationship to us before. Mothers may need us to become the parents. Partners may need us to become the parents, too. Caring for a spouse, caring for a child who's unable to care for themselves, we're giving all our energy in that direction, but the hard part is, though we know what we're doing is for the greater good and for the person we love, we're not getting that kind of acknowledgement, awareness, interaction that we might get from someone else. And I think that's the hard part because we love that person so much, but they're not there for us in the way they were when the relationship began. And we need someone to fill the gap of connecting to another human. I can remember what Dr. Dex White is describing here about what happens in these transitions. For me, this was surprising and devastating. The relationship changes because everything is changing and that might leave a void of unmet needed human connection. And the void, that space between the connection we need and what's available to us is where the distress and despair of loneliness settles in. There's one last reason why it can be hard to recognize and address the underlying causes of loneliness. And I think that's, we feel guilty because caregiving isn't enough to emotionally fulfill our needs to feel loved, appreciated in ways I think that we might need to. And I think there's a shame that goes with needing something from others. So part of that's that emotional need that we have that's not met in the role of caregiver. And then there's that, the, you know, the practical needs. Our social support relationships provide emotional help. They provide instrumental care. Um, they provide kind of that assessment, like, are we doing it right? You know, and so all these different ways we need other people in our lives, these types of support and needing other people to support us is hard, especially for women to ask for. I think most of us can relate to the feeling of not knowing how to ask for help or just feeling that resistance to it, the overwhelm of feeling that nobody can help. It starts to get clearer how this can form a cycle with shame and guilt. You need help, you need friends, you need social interaction and people to vent to, and then shame tells you that needing these things is too much and just spreading the heart, that caregiving should be enough, even if that doesn't make any logical sense. Feeling guilty makes it so much harder to confront that painful void and discourages us from asking for the help we need. It's interesting that when someone finally reaches out to a counselor, they're at a point where they don't know what to do. And I think part of that is when we try to solve problems on our own, we're going to get stuck just in life. You know, I think about how we don't always have all the answers and helping caregivers realize that they're not supposed to have all the answers, that, you know, making it okay to need support 
I so appreciate this wisdom from Suzanne Diggs-White that we're not supposed to have all the answers. I have to wonder if one of the side effects of isolation is this distorted thinking. It seems obvious that we're not supposed to have all the answers or that we have needs, but only when I say that out loud, which would only happen if I'm talking to someone else. In isolation, that wasn't so clear. Loneliness told me that I was the only one who has gone through this intense caregiving situation. And obviously that's not true, but that loneliness tries to convince you it is true. Sometimes I've spoken with someone in a similar situation as I am in, usually other widows and widowers who cared for and buried their spouses. And they're describing how they feel and I think, Oh, I, I know what you mean. I feel that too. It's odd to feel so connected, not crazy, not alone, and also so sad that someone feels the same way you do too. It's such a complicated way of feeling, but there's something powerful in it too. This was described to me by Richard Louis, who was a caregiver to both of his parents and who made a documentary called Unconditional Healing Hidden Wounds about family caregivers. You'll hear him reference that as the movie. It's a film he made about his own experience and caregiving as a whole. And he had such an interesting way of interpreting the loneliness he felt as he was actively creating shared spaces for people to connect and feel seen. Knowing you're not alone is not a binary thing. It is got like a hundred steps to it when you're in it. And then there's a hundred steps after. And I'm probably undercounting by a factor of a thousand, whatever way we want to look at it. Because there's all these little things and then you feel alone and you feel like, oh, that's, that's something other people do. And then I feel alone. So it's like going back and forth. And one of the things that taught me that were all these people that were talking about caregiving or who are very communicative and then they'll experience something culturally about caregiving. It could be a gathering event, it could be the movie, or it could be reading a book. And what I learned from the movie specifically is that I was reading every comment on social media, and I normally don't, for the film. Oh, yeah, wow. And you know this too, Lisa. When you read it, you know, you, you understand the weight of every word chosen by a caregiver. You know it. it it's just... Oh, yeah. You, you, you see it in different ways. You see people. You see them. And they were saying, I feel seen. And every time I saw that, I knew what they were saying. Mm -hmm. I knew they weren't saying, I feel seen. I knew they were saying, I feel seen. Yeah. And that is a journey. That is the hundred steps. The journey of a hundred steps. I appreciate Richard Louis' description of this so much because everyone wants and needs to feel seen. I think that's at the heart of finding relief for loneliness and caregiving. It was for me. When I felt like someone knew or saw what it was really like for me, I could keep going. 
Emily Campbell, my friend who jokes about normies with me, is one of those people who taught me that putting into words what she opens up about and what she needs, describing the gap, even if there's no way to fix it right now, that helps you feel seen. And it wasn't until talking to her as I prepared this episode that I realized something about loneliness that I never fully understood before. We were talking about that gap between what you need and what you can have. You know, people, even when there's nothing anyone can do to physically help your situation, um, they still try to be encouraging and empathetic and all these things. But at the very end of the day, whatever you're going through with this person that you're caregiving for, you have to grieve it and no one can do that for you and no one can help you do that. And that's lonely. You have to go through that grief all by yourself and it's very, very lonely. There's lots of things people can do on the outside to like give you a little power and give you a little strength and show you a lot of love. But like literally, right, at the end of the day, you're you're going through it alone and that grief is so lonely. It's so lonely. It's really hard. When Emily described loneliness as grief, a light bulb went off in my head. We had done all of these interviews in anticipation for this episode with so many caregivers. And every time I asked someone about loneliness, they had something big to say. And it always ended up a conversation about sadness or grief. And I really didn't notice this until later when I was looking for all these conversations to put together the pieces for an episode on loneliness and caregiving. As my producers and I re-listened to the tapes, we were looking for the keyword loneliness and we couldn't find it. All we could find were these conversations about sadness and loss and mourning. And honestly, I was really confused because it hadn't happened with any other topic in any other episode in the series. When I asked people about burnout, we talked about burnout. What was happening here? Because I know I had had these profound conversations about loneliness that had changed the way that I felt about it. Why does a question about loneliness always turn into an answer about grief? As I've had more time to think about it, I realize that this absolutely, completely makes sense. Because when I'm trying to talk about caregiving to someone else, in a lot of ways, I am just talking about my grief and how I'm holding it and carrying it. The thoughts I use, the phrases I use, the descriptions of what's going on in our heads when I have these conversations with other caregivers. All of these emotions are just overlapping, and we end up talking about our grief. You can't talk about loneliness without talking about the pain of the grief of feeling connected to someone and losing it. I want you to hear Emily's description of what loneliness feels like for her. It's like a a very emotional loneliness too, you know, when friends have all their children growing up and graduating and leaving home or, you know traveling, college, whatever, and that's not happening for Connor, and we have to, you know, always think about his long-term care, that's lonely. There's not a lot of people I can talk to about that. Um, Sure, there's other special moms that are like me in the same boat, and of course, we absolutely, you know, rely on each other for that support, but just in my own family and in my own close circle of friends, no one else is in that position, and that's lonely, you know? Um, Like we said before, like the normies don't think about those aspects of it. They do think about the very physical aspects of it. Like, wow, you're changing 
a 16-year-old in diapers or, wow, you're picking up glass or whatever that's broken. But they don't think about the loneliness Mm -hmm. that you feel. Just it's like a form of grief, I think, you know. And also it is so isolating. There's a lot of things that have changed as Connor's gotten older. We can't do as many things as we could do when he was younger. And so we are homebound more, especially like if he's in a seizure cluster, I have to cancel everything that I have planned. Um, We can't leave the house. We're just homebound. And that is super lonely. You know, like everyone's doing whatever they're going to be doing that day or, you know, even missing church or or him missing school and me walking him in and talking with the teacher and all that stuff. When you miss out on those things, it's very lonely. And it's also like I'm in it with him on my own. Of course, like, I mean, I have my husband's help and my children and family and friends, but like when it comes down to it, I'm the mom and he's my baby and we're in it together and it gets lonely, especially because he's nonverbal. He can't talk to me, you know, Yeah. but it's hard. And I think people forget about that. I will never know what it feels like to be Emily. I can't know. But when I hear her talking about this experience of watching other people look forward to milestones that she won't get to celebrate with Connor, oh, this loneliness that behaves like grief, I feel seen. I hear echoes of my own grief and loneliness. The, how will I feel when I go to my sister's 50th wedding anniversary? I'll never have one. How will I feel when my child gets married and their dad's not there? I can't remember how that inside joke we had ends. Now I'll never remember. What else have I forgotten? I'll stop there. I mean, really listing all the thoughts that creep up on me and surprise me, reminding me of my loneliness. It's just hurting my feelings. Like Emily said earlier, At the end of the day, and after all the help that anyone can offer, caregiving involves grieving. There's some portion of sadness that only you will feel, and that is lonely. Before my husband passed away, I used to push grief away and reason, well, he's still alive. I'm taking care of him now. Be in the moment. It's not time to grieve yet. But that was so frustrating. It really is an impossible thing to carefully pick apart emotions and try to organize them in an orderly fashion. Inevitably, the grief spills over. It has to. Fighting it is compounding the loneliness. It's not helpful. I asked Emily, with her decades of experience living with this grief, how she copes, how she keeps going. And this is what she said. When I used to get those feelings, Uh you know, years ago, seven, eight years ago, nine years ago, I would kind of panic and think, oh, I have to keep this at bay or I have to do something to not feel sad and lonely and depressed. And, you know, now I just let it come. And if that means I need to lay in my bed for the afternoon and watch dumb TV or play games on my phone, I will let myself do that. And sometimes it's more than an afternoon and that's okay. And A lot of things have fallen through the cracks, specifically mopping my floor and getting laundry done and put away. But, you know, if that's what has to be sacrificed for, you know, my mental health, then so be it. It's fine. And that used to really stress me out when I was younger. Like, you know, probably in my 30s, I I cared more about that and felt like I wasn't taking care of myself if my house wasn't put together and if I wasn't at yoga and, you know, all these things. And now I realize if I just go through the storm, you know, and and ride it out, it will pass quicker and then I'll feel better. 
And so it's truly like if I have to give myself a couple days of just like, I need to sleep, I need to, and part of that is always, I need a lunch with my girlfriends, you know, and I need some stupid shows and then I feel better you know, and then it passes quicker. And I, and I really try to be patient with myself. I have this thing inside me that I'm sure you have too. And most of people our age, if I'm laying down or watching TV, I start listing all the things I could be doing, right? All the things Mm -hmm. like, well, I have time right now. I could clean up my office or I could do this. And I have had to like push that out and say, this is what I need to do right now. I just need to take it easy, shut my brain off have some rest, and then I'm going to feel better. Emily didn't have to interview the scientists to intuitively build this holistic remedy for loneliness, examining her unmet needs, physical, emotional, social, reaching out to reduce her isolation, and then being gentle with herself, taking the time to sit in the void with pain that only can be felt alone until it passes. And even though she didn't mention it, you may have picked up on the way Emily shares about her experience so openly and fearlessly. This stuff isn't easy to talk about. And I've observed this over many years. Emily's willingness to share so honestly, especially about how lonely it really is, gives others permission to do the same. And talking about it helps. The one thing all caregivers can relate to is feeling lonely. Conversations like these break down the isolation and reverse the distorted thinking, which makes us feel like we can't ask for help or that caregiving itself should somehow meet the social and emotional needs for connection that make us human. I'm so grateful for all the busy, grieving caregivers who took the time to talk to me for this caregiving series. It speaks to the importance of talking about it, that they would not be only willing, but enthusiastic to have these vulnerable, hard conversations with me. It shows the hope they have and how much they prioritize connection. I just want to leave you with this thought. In the most lonely moments of my caregiving journey, what gave me hope and still does, were the random, unplanned, brutally honest, even sometimes irreverent conversations with people who were willing to share their tender experiences and make me feel seen. They didn't have to close the gap, the void. It was enough to feel that spark of hope that somebody gets it, somebody knows. It proved that even if I feel alone, I'm not. Each of us knows the pain of loneliness, which means that each of us has a story that can make someone else feel seen. I hope you'll share yours. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stoneley and Michael Combs and music and post-production by Gracie Davis. Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstadt and Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White are both researchers, professors, and experts at the top of their fields whose work you should definitely follow. Check out the episode page on our website for more links where you can keep up with them. Richard Louie is a renowned news anchor, journalist, author, and filmmaker. You can watch his documentary, Unconditional, on Amazon Prime, and we'll put a link to that too on our website. To connect with us about this episode, please join our listener community on Facebook. We'll be hosting additional conversations there with more opportunities to share and find resources.